No, 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 that's it. No, it's over. It's over. No more. Now, again, I didn't didn't win any money, so don't. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano, and welcome to another edition of RLTP's Off Road with Me. And uh, this is sort of an all RLTP uh, podcast today because I'm featuring two people who are RLTP ensemble members. The first is Lucas Lloyd in our feature called RLTP Ensemble at Work elsewhere. And Lucas has uh, created another theater company in Buffalo. And it's called The Lightbulb Project, and he'll tell you all about it. And then after that, the lovely and incredibly talented Lynn Koshilniak, who is the designer of the upcoming play Tribes. She's the set designer extraordinaire. I first met her years ago when we did Amadeus over at ICTC, and I have just been in love with her work ever since. And she is also an RLTP ensemble member, but she's here to talk about her craft and how she got here and what it's all about. And I feel like I've talked too long already. So let's start with Lucas Lloyd. And Lucas is representing the Lightbulb Project. He is an RLTP ensemble member, but he has started his own theater company. They have one more week of performances of a show called The Seagull. S-I-E-G-E-L, over there at Alleyway Theater. So if you get a chance, go out and see it. But he'll tell you more about it right now here on RLTP's Off-Road. Welcome, Lucas Lloyd, to Off-Road and our special segment, RLTP Ensemble at Work Elsewhere. And, And you are really elsewhere because... As I think, I don't know if it was Tony or whoever wrote the review for you, said, who in his right mind basically would do what this guy has done in the middle of a pandemic when other theaters are locked down or postponing? Here comes a guy who says, I've got a good idea. I'm going to start a new theater company. Why don't you tell us where this inspiration came from? I mean, the idea for the company has been percolating in me growing in me, evolving in me for years, for 20 years at least. But it really actually was during the pandemic, as if it's over. But I mean, during the shutdown in 2020, um, when there was absolutely no theater going on, and um, a lot of businesses were closed, and I was just at home a lot with my wife, and that I got to really think, what am I doing in the theater? Why am I doing it? What should I be doing? And really started to, you know, really imagine if I were to do what I most want to do, what would it look like? And, you know, by the end of 2020, I realized that I had to move forward on it. You know, I couldn't go back to just doing the good work that I was already doing for other companies that I had to just take a gamble. And that I would start doing it as soon as, you know, theater started to reopen. So in April of 2021, everyone was pretty hopeful. You know, the vaccines were rolling out. You know, we were entering the summer, so theaters weren't opening yet. But the expectation was that hopefully by the fall, theaters would be reopening. So I contacted Chris at the alleyway about renting their theater. And we started planning for it. 
So it was never my intention to do this in the middle of the pandemic. I thought I was going to be doing it on the other side of the pandemic. I could have thought, you know, he offered me the January, February slot. I could have thought, well, that doesn't sound like a great time in Buffalo. But <laughs> but no, at that point, I was just eager to take whatever I could. Very grateful and uh, and snatched it up, of course. So here we are. Okay, so before we go any further, I just have to say that I'm completely distracted by this gorgeous child that is sitting on Lucas's lap, Zoe, and she is the most adorable thing you could ever imagine, and her eyes are as big as saucers, and and I've interrupted her mealtime, but she's being very good about it. So let me ask you two main questions I have. Number one, why is it called The Light Bulb Project? And number two, what is your focus that you think makes your theater company not different necessarily, but what niche do you think you might be able to fill? The Lightbulb Project is, in a sense, it's like a playground for me because I think of the kind of acting that I love, that I both love to see and love to do and love to work with as a director it's organically rehearsed. You discover the scenes and the moments in the process. And when you're on the stage, even in performance, you're not just executing just what you've rehearsed, but you are living truthfully on stage in the moment, in the imagined circumstances with your scene partner, with a live audience, and you're pursuing something together on the stage as characters that's live and fresh for that night. So that when you're in the audience, if you're really paying attention, you get the sense that you're witnessing something that may be a little different tonight. That maybe, you know, if you came again next week, you might be seeing the same story, but you're getting it just a little different. You're getting what's happening, how the story is playing out tonight. The words are the same. Most of the blocking is going to be the same, but you are living in the moment on the stage as an actor and you're witnessing it that way from an audience. That's something that I, I have gotten to experience as an actor and I've gotten to experience as an audience member. But what I most want to feel and to see as an artist and as an audience member is that truly live experience. So I'm Meisner trained by uh, Lyrell and Kay in Boston. So I bring that to everything that I do. But it's not just Meisner. I also really believe in, you know, kind of what Stanislavski taught later in his career about pursuing objectives on the stage. And, and I learned an organic style of directing as, as one of many styles, but the one that I love the most. So I have a lot of tools in my belt to pursue this kind of theater intentionally. But I wanted to have a place where I and the actors were trying things to see what made us come most alive. So the project part of our name is this idea that it, this is the pursuit, a pursuit of something, the pursuit of an acting style that really makes a company of actors come alive and have this experience, you know, as often as as we're able to. So there's some intentional trial and error involved. And the light bulb also speaks to that trial and error because I think of Thomas Edison, 
and his famous quote. He said, people say I have failed 10,000 times to find a filament that will make uh, the bulb burn. But his quote is, I have not failed, not once. I have successfully found 10,000 ways that it will not work. And so it's that ethos of seeing the value in experimentation that I wanted to kind of latch on to philosophically. But also the light bulb, it speaks to the idea of taking a source of energy for us, a written play, and finding how to translate that into a light that will shine to a room full of people faithfully and in a way that's helpful. Light, of course, you know, is um, something that helps us see ourselves better and maybe less able to hide, but more able to live. So also early on in our process, because I'm starting, I started this company with essentially zero capital, except what was in our checking account, was um, the sense of kind of a bare bones, minimalist. The focus is not on big sets or spectacle. The focus is on the actors and just keeping things simple. And the light bulb also kind of speaks to that production ethos. Okay, give us a little plug for the show that's running. When this airs, it will be February 14th. You'll have another week or two left. But can you tell us a little bit about the show and where it's running and the times and dates and all of that? So The Seagull is the name of the play. It's written by a great modern comic voice, Michael Mitnick. It's not Michael Chekhov's famous seagull. It's spelled S-I-E-G-E-L, and it's the last name of kind of the central character of the play. It is a hilarious modern romantic comedy. It came out in 2018, I believe, was its first production. It uh, is located in time right after the... uh, Trump-Hillary election cycle. So there's a lot of reference to that. But it's perfect for Valentine's Day and um, and the month of February because it is about love and what it really means to love someone and someone that you could commit to. And what does that mean? But it's funny. It, it is very, very funny. And so we actually close on February 20th. So we have one weekend left. And the... Part of uh, the light bulb project's philosophy also is not only do we, right, Zoe, not only do we want to shine a light for everyone in the room, but we want to get everyone in the room. So our ticketing price philosophy is, look, our standard ticket price is $36. Pay that if you can. Pay more if you can. <laughs> but uh, also pay what you want and pay, you know, so if you're not used to going to the theater or if you're not sure about this new company and what we're doing and um, you're not sure that you want to risk $36 or you just don't add $36 in your budget, come see the show. Pay what you can. Right from our ticketing site, there's an option for a $12 ticket or a $24 or even cheaper. But if you need a rate that's not there, there's a link to um, send me an email. I'll make sure you see it at the rate you want. So come see The Seagull. We have one weekend left. It's a great show. You won't be sorry. And it's performing at the Alleyway Theater on their main stage 
The alleyway, if you're not aware, is right next to Shays. So come on downtown. And watch for future Lightbulb Project productions coming up. I wish you the best of luck with this whole thing. It's called The Lightbulb Project. The show is called The Seagull. It's running at the alleyway for one more weekend. Is it running Thursday, Friday, Saturday? It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all at 7.30 p.m. What is the website? Lightbulbprojectonstage.com. Lightbulbprojectonstage, all one word, dot com. Lucas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate your giving me this time. I wish you the best of luck with this whole thing. Have a good day. So that was Lucas. And uh, the show is called The Seagull. It's over there at the alleyway. His company is called The Lightbulb Project. If you'd like to encourage young artists, take a ride over there and, and check out this very funny show. And now, without further ado, the young lady who is designing the next show that opens on March 3rd, Tribes for RLTP, Miss Lynn Koshilniak. If you're going to a first read-through and the designers are going to be there, there is nothing like the moment when the set designer opens the portfolio, opens the model of the set, and it's there in front of you and you just go, I I wouldn't have thought of that. And, oh, what's that? It's It's definitely a cool part. It's also nerve-wracking because there there might always be that one person in the ensemble who's like, oh, oh, I navigate that now, huh? (laughs) So you just hope you're doing right by everybody. So everybody feels that they can bring their best selves to the work. You know, it's the collaboration that is also the part that just keeps drawing me to it, right? Because if, if I'm doing my part, it means other people feel empowered to do, bring their best selves to the work. And let's talk just, I want people to know who you are and I want to really get into your past, including the fact that you grew up five minutes from where I'm living right now. You grew up in Blaisdell. Yeah. And and, and you probably went to Frontier, maybe. I'm not sure. So we'll talk about that. But just to give some really quick credits, because you've been, you've been all over and you've done stuff everywhere. I can't even enumerate all of the places in Chicago at Steppenwolf and Steppenwolf Garage and Chicago Cultural Center and all over these other places. And and not to mention stuff that you did in Buffalo, which is, we already talked about Art Park a little bit, but every major theater in the city, including Shays and Shays 710 and the Nutcracker that you did for them, you have credits all over the place and awards all over the place. And of course, your most honored distinction is being a member of the ensemble of Road Less Traveled Productions. We're, we're inducted the same year, I believe, right? Yes. Yes, we were. Yes, we were. A fine year. <laughs> was, yeah, that, that was a very good year for them. Uh, after that, every, Scott just said, oh, now what am I going to do? I've peaked. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> and of course, I know you. I Was the first time that I met you, was it for Amadeus? It would have been for Amadeus. Oh, my God. And, of course, that was a highlight of my career. I was not supposed to do that show. Vincent was. And I never got to see the big reveal. But when I showed up and I saw the set design or model or whatever and realized what we were going to be acting on, it was what a glorious moment that was for for me personally. So that was the first time that we met. But I, I do have to talk about for a second how you 
So you grew up in Blaisdell in the Frontier School District? I did. So I grew up around the McKinley Mall area. I was in sixth grade when the McKinley Mall opened, so it wasn't that an exciting time for, for me. I found stage crew at Frontier Central. I always played tennis in the fall, but every spring I did the musical, and I was backstage from the beginning. So I loved my art classes. I loved my technology classes. I've been drafting since I was in the seventh grade. I've just always been drawn to the kind of mechanical precision, but then the dream world of fine art. And I liked technology so much that I ended up applying and getting into Buff State. I got accepted to their honors program. And there was a path there to get into industrial technology. I actually thought I might be a shop teacher. Hmm. And then my first year at Buff State, I took an intro to theater class because I had always done theater backstage, proud fly captain, actually. Can I just ask you a question about that? But going back to Frontier, those were the days when their set designer was a man. Was it a professional guy? I can't think of his name right There was, there's a local rental company, Head Drops man by the name of Ted Patton. That's it. That's the name. Ted would paint with us. And I believe many of the drops that you see at local high schools, you know, this would have been in the early 90s. Ted painted those drops. So as a teenager, I'd be working with Ted, who was a master painter. Yes. It was the first time I'd seen a scenic artist take off their shoes and work in their socks and come across the drops and be maneuvering the paint and all that kind of stuff. And I was in the thick of that part where many of my friends were on stage, you know, being in Greece and being in Sound of Music. I was loving sawing the roof off of an old car to make grease lightning, you know, and, you know, I had definitely had my stage crew pals as well. And many of them I still keep in touch with today. And actually one of them actually worked on the Nutcracker build for Shays that I would do years later. But really that time I saw that it was possible that these were things I could do, but it was really tied to that idea of potentially going into industrial technology. You had the wonderful opportunity to work with this man who, who somehow, I don't want to necessarily say it inspired you, but who was a terrific influence on you and helped push you along in the direction of theater design rather than, as you said, industrial arts technology. I would say it definitely planted the seed. And then off I go to Buff State because I could play tennis there. I was really still like, I really needed to be on a tennis team some way. Division three Buff State was perfect because I could still do my extracurricular theater, all good. But there I was in my intro to theater class, freshman year, and it was Drew Kahn's first year of teaching. So Drew, who is an extraordinary educator, I just became engaged in, in the history of theater. And he had said, you know, a, a light board op bailed for our show. Does anybody in this class want this position? So I volunteered. Right. So there, there I was, because you know what, at Frontier, somebody had already had that job. Um, and, you know, I just never, came, I, I, but I, like, I always wanted to do that. So, you know, okay. So, so I did that and I got to know folks in the theater department and 
and understood what Casting Hall Productions was and became a board member of Casting Hall Productions and later president of Casting Hall Productions. And Carol Beckley joined the faculty at Buff State at that time. And Carol had uh, studied set design at SMU from other amazing designers in the industry. And, And she brought all this professional practice in set design and you know, extraordinary teachers like Donna McCarthy and Matt Caldwell was a lighting professor at the time. So I got to move from being a light board operator to through the ranks where I was maybe one of the first undergrads who was regularly designing there with one of my cohorts. I remember us going to Donna McCarthy and saying, can we get in the season as designers? And and that really started the whole ball rolling. And soon I was not in industrial technology anymore. I was in the theater department. (laughs) Well, that's what I was just about to ask to sort of recap. So you went there with a different goal in mind, a different major in mind? I I did. I, I thought I wanted to be in education, which I turned out I was right. And I thought that might be in industrial technology or in French. And um, so I started as a double major in industrial technology in French and ended up as a theater in French major because I really, through the coursework in theater, I could apply the architecture that I was interested in, the architectural skills and the art skills in through the discipline of theatrical design. Ah, I get you now. And I've always had a sense that I like to manage projects. As a designer, you need to be very conscious of time, suss out what are the pieces and parts, how are we going to get from idea to opening night. So there's always been that element of management in in what I care about. And I certainly, I've tried, I, you know, as a young person, I stage managed. And I think anybody who ever does theater needs to stage manage at some point just to have a full appreciation of what all the different stakeholders within the production need at different parts of the process. Did you come from an artistic family? You know, my parents loved the arts. They were in retail and banking, but I was taken to see stuff always. So from the time I was little, little, I went to shows that maybe other little kids weren't taken. You know, I saw Stephen Eady at the BPO. I would see everything at Art. I'd see everything at Shades. We would go to Toronto. We were more of a day trip kind of family, but it was important to see the art exhibits that came through or major concerts. I, I tell you, this, this may sound silly, But at the age of nine years old, I was taken to Rich Stadium, the Michael Jackson Thriller Tour, right? Front row of the upper deck directly across from that stage. And I could probably draw out for you the opening sequence of the visuals that were presented. I bet. So the idea of visual support for live event was something that I knew (laughs) someone made that happen. And, you know, through college, really understood how that could become a viable career path. So it's interesting that you go to see Michael Jackson at Rich Stadium, (laughs) and you're admiring the set design and the fact that someone put all that together to make this extraordinary experience for the audience. I I now have a seven-year-old, and (laughs) 
she comes to technical rehearsals, you know, it, in, in non-COVID time, she'd often, you know, make an appearance when appropriate to like be observing these technical rehearsals. And I just see, it'll be very interesting her relationship to live event and the things that she looks at as she gets older, what interests pique her. Now, now my husband is an actor term teacher. So I, I see in her, she's has very aware of what the performer's doing in a way that I don't think I, I didn't look at that part first. I get you. I don't know. Maybe we're, we're wired to look at different things <laughs> from the beginning. Who knows? Oh, there's no doubt about it. And this whole idea of nature and nurture, and is it because she's your daughter and your husband's obviously, or is it because... She has been exposed through you and and Neil, that the way the two of you sort of influence her, him on this side and you on this side. But the question here is, does, will she also have artistic skill, you know, to be able to draw or just an admiration? You had, you know, the admiration for it, but you also developed as a as an artist. Indeed. And, you know, it, you do have to credit your teachers. It's it. So like early on, the art, art class is what, what excited me or, you know, my mom taking me to the local library to do every extra art and craft thing that was ever happening. You know, it, it's it's someplace that I've been comfortable. It's an area where I feel like I can contribute. So it's great to kind of find that and then be able to do it often. <laughs> But Buffalo is a great place to be doing it. It sure is. So let, let me ask you, how did you get to Northwestern? Because you went to Northwestern after Buff State. I had a degree in theater, concentration design and technology. It was a BA degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I had the French minor. And I went in my senior year to something called URTA which is the University and Resident Theater Association. It's a conference. And for emerging practitioners looking to go into graduate study in theater, it's a chance to be seen by a number of different programs. And Carol and Donna McCarthy, they they looked at my stuff and off I went to URTA's, which um, that particular year were being held in Chicago. And I believe on the North, I was at the Northwestern campus for that. And you put up your portfolio. And you walk away and reps from these grad schools across the country come and look at your stuff. And then you come back and are given a sheet of paper of people who might want to interview you. So I did essentially this big cattle call of grad school interviews. And at the end of the day, I got the offer from Northwestern. So I went there on an assistantship. I knew leaving Buff State, I've always had one foot in management and one foot in design. I had done a lot of lighting design, but knew I wanted to do more set design. I was looking for a program that was more cinegraphic based, where I could really think of design as design and then hone skills, hopefully in more than one discipline. Um, So really focused in lighting and set there. But then was able to go to Northwestern and be in Chicago and take courses on collaboration from Bob Falls, who's the artistic director of the Goodman. Mm. And then, you know, really get my sea legs as a professional designer through Chicago's storefront, working at places like the Piven with Joyce Piven, where the Cusacks and Jeremy, that whole legacy of actors 
got to work with playwright Sarah Rule there, got to do an emerging designer residency at the Steppenwolf, be in the Steppenwolf garage. Was that all part of the Northwestern program? Or did you have to work your way into all of those places? In other words, well, I guess the graduate program you were in, did that afford you all of these opportunities or did you seek them out on your own? The graduate program definitely afforded me opportunities to design within the season and to also have positions such as like head electrician and scenic artist within a full season of shows being produced there. And the faculty was a gateway to some of these projects in the community. The costume professor, Virgil Johnson, introduced me to a lighting designer by the name of Pat Collins, extraordinary designer. And just in meeting her, she happened to recommend me to a project at a smaller venue. So then once you started to get out there and just meeting other practitioners who were in these, Chicago's, it's not that different than the Buffalo theater scene in the way people know each other. Mm -hmm. And I know somebody's lighting the show there and Chicago felt like just a bigger Buffalo. (laughs) So it's, it's, um, was a great place to get started, but also to see different perspectives. In Buffalo, I had already been a bit in the trench, but more so as a manager. So when I was at Buff State there, I interned with Blossom Cohen in the development department of Studio Arena when, when Studio Arena was still there. And then I transitioned into being a production manager at the Studio Arena Theater School and was able to stage manage. And you know, when, when you're stage managing, you're in the booth with the lighting professionals. So a wonderful technician by the name of Lou Avery, a historic lighting technician in Buffalo. Like I was able to spend a summer in the booth with Lou, who not only I was stage managing, but I was also learning what it meant to be an electrician in a regional theater. Mm. Theater, like everything else, people don't understand everything that's going on behind the scenes. And that's really what fascinates me most, especially in this podcast, the people who are behind the scenes, who are making things happen. A perfect example for yourself is people don't realize that when you design a show, you also, you draw things out on paper and then you model things out. You create things out of I'm not even sure what it's made out of, cardboard or something, poster board or something, and you create little models so the actors can actually see in three dimensions what is happening. It's not just something where you come in and say, okay, we're going to put a wall over here or a wall over there. An example would be Disgraced at Road Less Traveled with all those light, those things that were hanging in the background. I mean, the the visuals of that, you could not possibly explain two-dimensionally on a piece of paper. And you, as the set designer, you create all of these visuals for us puny actors to just be able to envision and create our world within this the context of it. I guess I'm trying to do some kind of a little educational thing here because, <laughs> you know, when you, as you said, when, you've, when you're behind the scenes and you see everything that goes on, I don't think everybody has a great appreciation for it, or even recognizes it, and maybe they shouldn't. You know, maybe they should be more like my twelve-year-old granddaughter, who just takes it in and goes, "Wow," as opposed to my fifteen-year-old granddaughter, who takes it in and says, "Oh, that's interesting how they did that." <laughs> I have a hard time even going to see shows myself because I'm always going, "Well, look at that lighting design. Look at that interesting effect that they created." Well, I tell you, I know a show that when a show really is getting a moment right, I stop thinking about all the technology and the work that went into it. Mm-hmm. It's hard when it's what you do for a living and and I'm teaching set design this semester. 
So, you know, I'm talking tomorrow about all the various hats that a set designer can wear. So the, the ability to do text analysis, the ability to do historical research, the ability to draw and, and to draft and all the various ways you might do this in this day and age. So it really can be as simple as pencil to paper, but you know, I have students who've only drawn on tablets their whole lives. All right. You know, there's so many different apps and 3D programs, and some of them uh, use less memory and, and have less system requirements for your computer. So I might have a student who has found a great tech tool to help them achieve their design objective. That's something that I don't normally use. And it's like your role of, as educator changes a bit to be like, well, what's the end goal? And there are going to be so many different ways to achieve that end goal. But at the end of the day, a plan needs to be made. And at the end of the day, the audience isn't going to know if you hand drafted that plan. They don't know if you did it in AutoCAD. They don't know if you did it in SketchUp. They don't know if you did it in Vectorworks. So I guess the good uh, reason to look behind the curtain and understand what all those pieces and parts are is that there are many different aspects to realizing the design. Some are more technical, some are more about dreaming and imagining, and all those personalities do need to come together in order to, at the end of the day, for the set or the environment to exist. And the job opportunities in the field are there and are actually quite diverse. And when I work at like an RLTP, I get to wear my different hats, right? I get to come in and be the charge scenic painter <laughs> and uh, figure out all the supplies we need and, you know, make the list for the hardware store and budget all that out and try to think about how much time that's going to take. But I'm also doing all the studio things that you mentioned. I believe in doing physical models, even as I do sometimes now do 3D models in virtual space. I have a strong commitment to still doing physical models because I think it's so impactful for the director and actor. Mm -hmm. I also feel like I figure out the feasibility of the design in doing that. If someone else is going to build and engineer it, it helps me realize, oh, I actually need an extra step there. The physical moving of objects around for me is an important part of my process as opposed to clicking a mouse and dragging it around the screen. I find I discover different things. Mm. But then for presentation and working in perhaps larger scope projects, definitely you know, having computer skills and being able to make virtual renditions of these environments is important. That brings up a really interesting question to me. I don't know where you fit in. I know you're a young lady compared to me. You're kind. <laughs> I don't want to talk about age, but were you there when the sort of a big switchover to computer design happened? Were you there when it all of a sudden, because you had to keep up with things as they've changed and as you're now teaching them, you've just mentioned about half a dozen different types of technology that are used for design and drawing vector and uh, AutoCAD and, and SketchUp and all of those things. You, you mentioned all of those things. You've had to keep up with them probably yearly, if not daily, as they changed from when you first started out. Did you feel the change happening or did you embrace the change or did you, how did it happen for you? Yeah, I have definitely embraced the change and it's a lot to keep up with, to be completely honest. 
You think about when I was doing lighting design, when I started out, I was on two scene preset boards still. Like that was still common that that would have been in your theater. And I still have one in my classroom because I believe that that's a useful thing to understand and know. But here I am about roughly 20 years-ish later, say, that sort of midway through my career, LED lights became prevalent in our industry in a way that they were not part of the inventories I started out with. The software to pre-visualize performative events is much more sophisticated and there's many different kinds. When I was in grad school, I had mad respect for a set professor by the name of Sam Ball, who had, if you are a design nerd like me, Sam studied with Donald Onslager at Yale and Donald Onslager worked with Robert Edmund Jones, who is like the founding practitioner of what we might think of of American set design. And Sam in his classes was like, guys, you got to get with the CAD. So I went straight from undergrad to grad. And, you know, that was new for him at a different stage in his career. So really, as I was coming into grad school, it was starting to be used in a more Uh, it was more common to see theatrical designers using that newer software. And CAD, for those who don't know, is computer-assisted drawing? Computer-aided drafting. Aided drafting, thank you. So I had some of that in high school, but I was like, it was with a stylist. And a number of years ago, Vectorworks is a CAD program And that was becoming prevalent in the industry. And I went on my research leave to go and take classes at the time down in Maryland and actually took class from one of the developers of the software, which is awesome because then you're getting into the brains of how a software works. So I have done my due diligence in keeping my practice current not only because it's a passion and an interest and I want to do good work, but I also feel responsible as an educator. Sure. I am making sure that, you know, we are talking about where the industry is going, not just where it's been. <laughs> I have to laugh because it, in your classroom, you said you have a two scene preset lighting. Again, for people who don't understand, that was a lighting board where you set up what the lights would be in scene one. And while scene one is running, you had scene two set up and then you switched it over so that scene two was running. And then you, while scene two was running, you went back and set up for scene three. So it was all done by hand and it was all done only one scene in advance. Now via the computer, the entire show, maybe a hundred, who knows, 200 cues of lighting can be done all in a memory card, and all of it is preordained and they push a button. So to have your students sitting there in a classroom, all of your students now are all brought up with electronic-aided drafting. I'm sure they were all computer-aided drafting, and very few of them were uh, even aware of, much less exposed to, a mechanical two-scene preset. Right, and it's, you know, like cues hundreds, thousands and fixtures with many parameters. Before you were worried about, is the fixture on, off, 
and what percentage, how bright is it? Mm -hmm. And now you're dealing with full plots that have so many different attributes to each and every lighting fixture. So in a single second, you can tell that lighting fixture to be placed at someplace else. What color is it? What texture does it have? How sharp is the edge? And these are very powerful tools. It makes it more challenging in the fact that the lighting designer can be seen as a magician when you have all those tools because, oh, that's not the right idea. Let's just make it completely different. So as a lighting designer, you have to very much be on your game in terms of, well, what's the intention that we're going for? And even though I can make this look like anything, why am I making it look this particular way for this particular moment? Because what was our original intention? When I'm watching modern musicals, I'm looking for if the lighting is really helping me understand the story or if someone got too excited with their toolkit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you have all of those tools to play with, I'm sure there's a temptation to let's do something really nifty right here. And as you just said, if it doesn't serve the story and it doesn't serve the effect that you are trying to achieve, because we really haven't even talked about your lighting design work as well. You also did lighting design, for example, for the Nutcracker, right? That's done at Chase with probably literally thousands of lighting instruments and thousands of cues, I'm sure. So we're talking about extremely elaborate and complex lighting plots. The Nutcracker at Chase is an interesting project. I was the original set designer for that piece. And then Diane Burlingame and I originated the lighting design with her doing the really holding down the fort with the paperwork because set for a full-length ballet, there's a lot of pieces and parts. Sure. <laughs> to be an ambitious designer. And so Diane now actually still maintains that particular production and it has been running, I want to say, for over a decade now. Mm -hmm. But it's another one of these wonderful instances of this show that the place where you saw theater magic first as a kid, um, many years later, you get to go there and be a part of putting that magic on stage. And fun set design thing about Shays which I think our Nutcracker does a pretty good job about getting right, is that that venue has um, challenging sight lines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any time that you introduce a balcony into the equation as well, and sight lines is, you know, making sure that every person in every single chair gets a decent view of what they're seeing. And that was a big part of the initial startup of that process for us was actually mapping some critical audience sight lines going into Shays and looking from different various vantage points and creating some technical drawings that allowed us to really make sure that some of the elements were in particular positions, only would be so tall, so that whether you were underneath, sitting underneath the balcony or whether you were far house left or house right, that you were still seeing enough of the stage to be able to enjoy the the decadence of a party scene or the magic of a snow scene. And sometimes that's why there's symmetry on stage or certain things are both located stage right, stage left, so that those at, from anywhere in the house are still understanding the landscape that's being portrayed. Isn't that interesting? Again, something that other people would not even think about, that this all starts with the set designer and lighting designer making sure that certain 
pictures are viewable throughout the house. Is set designers need to think like directors, but then I believe that a set design shouldn't dictate the direction. So I want to make sure that I'm providing enough opportunities, entrances, levels, different ways to use space that's going to serve the particular story at hand. Then the most delightful thing for myself is when I see a director use a space in a way that I never thought it would be used. <laughs> but that at least means that I've done my job to look at those sight lines, to understand how that venue might best present this particular story, how that environment might be positioned in space this time. In a space like Shays or, or Klein Hands or Art Park, you have this gigantic space, but you also have a gigantic seating area that is fixed. Whereas at RLTP, the theater itself is moldable. You can change the arrangement of seating. You can, did you do the Antipodes? I don't remember now. Okay, so that's the one where you had seats on three sides. And for other shows, there are seats only on one side. It's a typical fourth wall sort of situation. But you, if I were to ask you, what are the advantages of different theaters, even though ROTP is a very small theater, less than 100 seats, you have the opportunity to shift things around and, and change the shape not only of the stage, but of the audience. Absolutely. And in a flexible space, by changing the relationship of the audience to performers and the way that the audience is interacting with each other creates a unique experience. So for the Antip Antipodes, we thought, let's put the audience around the boardroom table. So there they were then on three sides. Mm -hmm. For the production of Tribes, the audience is seated to one side, and it's if we're all looking through the window into their home. Gives it a more intimate, you're actually sort of spying on, not spying, but you're sort of observing this family, familial dynamic that within, this, within the show. Of course, that was a conscious choice on your part to make it seem as if you are uh, eavesdropping on a family. Absolutely. This particular environment for tribes is, I would say, different for me. I'm not a box set designer normally, but I really want to bring the audience into their home and have recognizable elements to the space. But I want to honor the global eclecticism of this family. I want the audience to see this as a home that could exist in the UK. The title tribes, the, the people that we find, led me to this idea of heritage prints, kind of where we come from and therefore what visual elements exist in our world. So I, an entry point for me was William Morris, who's a textile designer, a British textile designer from the late 1800s and richness of blues and patterns and infusing that into the space. These people are academics and, you know, their grown children are in their home and this has been their home for a long time. So there's richness and color and stuff that hopefully gives you insight into what their priorities have been. And I hope layers so that they're existing in different places within the home and you're seeing through to other areas within the home. You can imagine that the space is actually much bigger. 
So it's a lived-in space. You want, and, and again, you got this from reading the script and interpreting the script and analyzing the script. Is there a different sort of satisfaction in your mind to doing an intimate little space like this as opposed to the art park or, or Shay's space? Is there a different level of satisfaction? Because in this case, you are responsible for so much more, and it, it is more representative of... I don't know, maybe this isn't fair, of a singular vision, of your singular vision, as opposed to something that is on a larger scale and maybe has input from many more people? Or do you get the same amount of input and the same amount of satisfaction, whether you're designing for a 100-foot stage or a 20-foot stage? I would say it's all satisfying. It takes different kinds of energy. So when it is a larger stage and just the nature of it makes it a larger scale production. You're communicating things to a number of different people. So there's more responsibility on you to be able to explain the needs clearer through schematics and lists and ongoing conversation. And there's time for back and forth with those who fabricate and engineer in a different kind of way. When you're doing something at World Less Traveled and you have Lou, who is going to be doing most of the fabrication, it's a shorthand. It can be less meetings, you know, especially when you are part of an ensemble and you're used to meeting with people. You can make it challenging on yourself if you delay making decisions because you know you're the one who's going to paint it anyway. <laughs> so it's different, but um, satisfying and different kinds of ways and takes different kind of energy. Mm. If in one place, you know, you have to reserve the energy during tech week. Guess what? If there's a note at the end of tech, you better make sure you have the energy for two hours to do it too. <laughs> you know, but then when you're in a larger team structure, you need to then maybe redo the drawing because someone else is going to be part of that note. Lynn, let me ask you, this is kind of an off, off the wall question, but I'm curious if Scott or someone approaches you at the beginning of the season and says, Lynn, I want you to design this, this set from this script, or I want you to be the head designer and whatever, and then you read the script, have there been times when you've read a script and gone, oh man, this is a dog? <laughs> On the other hand, have there been scripts where you just loved it so much that it helped inspire you? Are, are there some scripts that are more inspirational and more more meaningful to you? Do you really, do they do something for you? I have to say, and, and now I'm kind of feeling bad that I've never come across a groaner, but uh, <laughs> I can't recall an instant where someone came to me with a script that they thought I might want to work on it, where I was like, you're wrong. <laughs> there are certainly projects where it was easier to feel connected to that project sooner. But as designers, I'm wired to find my entry point. There's always going to be something I feel in a play about the human condition, something that I'm interested in helping the storytellers to express. Or I think if I came across something that really portrayed something that was against personal values, that would be difficult for me, but I haven't come across that yet. I think it's a wonderful thing we can do 
theater has power when we can tell difficult stories and help populations be empathetic towards other populations. And if I can be a part of telling a difficult story that allows someone else to walk in someone else's shoes, that's cool. That's one of the reasons I like doing what I'm doing. If I could be part of adding to the spectacle that just helps you have a really fun night away from all your troubles, I'm totally on board with that too. So how did tribes fit into this with for you? I felt like I could have a seat at their dinner table when I read tribes, right? I wanted to understand these people better. And that really got me excited about being able to put a hyper-realistic environment on stage and think about how I could just give the audience a deeper understanding of this family's history Mm. through it. And it's also fun when there's these other locations thrown in, right? So the playwright puts in, we're, we're outside of a public restroom. We're at Sylvia's apartment, but we're mainly at this house. So then there's also the just a pure design challenge of mm. have to get to these two other places and how can they be represented within this overall world just in a way that makes sense for the audience to understand where we are now. It's a clear design problem, but you have to find the right solution for this context. And why did you come back to Buffalo? Was that always in the plan from Chicago? It wasn't. I knew at some point going into education was going to be the right move for me. It's it's one of the reasons why I did get my MFA. I had been doing storefront Chicago theater. In one year, I did 19 shows. (laughs) And at that level of production, I was doing a lot of lighting. You know, I was the electrician and the designer. I learned a lot. And my hometown happened to post a job that was for a set and lighting position specifically. And those are rare. And I had a lot of respect for the people who were teaching at UB because I was familiar. And I decided to apply and kind of the rest is history with that. But, you know, I, I had accomplished some of the things that I had hoped to accomplish in working in Chicago. I was able to work with a lot of different companies a lot of different playwrights. I got to the tech table at the Steppenwolf, which was a a personal goal. And I felt I had enough to say to next people coming up. And as a faculty member at a research institution, you are expected to have a continued practice. So I was still able to go and do shows at Virginia Stage. I was able to, in going into academia, I've been able to do things like participate in the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival initiatives, which is something I did as an undergrad. And later doing it as a faculty member, I was able to create some design and technology programming for our region and then was able to be on national committees. So I've seen college theater all over the United States. So being in academia, I wanted to be an educator, but I've also grown as an artist and continued 
my creative practice and my research. And now I do things like write about creative practice and collaboration and working in teams and all that other kind of stuff. And you've actually been published in a, a design book, yeah. the Parker Wolf Scene Design and Stage Lighting. Yeah, I've had my work included in some traditional textbooks that are used in the discipline in, in higher ed. I have a current book project that I'm working on with a colleague and another faculty member who's at University of Florida, where we're actually talking about team structures in set and costume design and that collaboration. Mm. A lot in theater training, there's a lot written about how designers and directors can come to a common vision. And we were acknowledging that maybe there needs to be more said about how those who have the idea for what it should look like and how it should function and those who actually fabricate and engineer how that relationship works. So that's that's a project I have going on right now. Lynn, you, you said that you really wanted to be involved in education from an early age, correct? Yeah. And I know you're tremendously involved in, in mentoring students and so on. What is there about it that attracted you so much? You know, I think when you love what you do, you get excited about it. And when you see it as a viable career path, I like being able to introduce opportunities to people who are art interested, who are technology interested, to how they might be able to make that be their livelihood. And I, I'm not quite sure why it's in my nature. I, I mean, I was not, I was a playground arts and crafts lady. You know, that's one of my first jobs for town of Hamburg rec, you know, and I love seeing the light bulbs go off when somebody tries something new and doing that for theater projects, there's always a next challenge. So there might be methods or techniques or theories we can rely on, but there's always a new creative problem to be solved. And it's exciting to see emerging practitioners try out different kinds of processes and then figure out their best way to achieve those artistic and those technical objectives. And then, of course, to have an audience come in and enjoy those efforts and to be able to support the cast and doing that every single night. Very satisfying, I'm sure. And I'm sure you've had, I won't even ask this as a question because I'm sure it's true, that I'm sure you've had students who you've said to yourself, oh, this kid's got it. This kid really has a, a knack for interpreting the script for envisioning what's happening, for making something very uniquely creative out of... I'm sure you've had people like that, and that's very satisfying as well. Absolutely. And even to students who find your class because they're required to take a level one design course, and maybe they thought they were something else and just didn't realize that this was another form of storytelling that they can engage in. And also some students come in quite sophisticated because what is done at the high school levels just keeps on growing in its sophistication. So you have some students who come in who have, you know, they're already off and running and starting to like know exactly what path. But you still have some students who are like, you know, okay, I'm in, the, I'm in your required course. But then it's that person who might have thought they were the performance, the performer or the director who is like, oh, this also relies on that kind of thinking. And here's another way that I can engage in the profession. Wow. And that's exciting, too. And it's another way to bring out the creativity that 
Because, of course, everybody's first reaction is, well, I'm going to be a star or I'm going to direct stars. I'm going to make billion dollar movies. But there is the whole other aspect of creativity. And as you said, ways to make a living, which are satisfying and which are creative. And you're seeing it, you're fostering it and seeing it grow within your students. And there's so many alternative venues. If you're training in design and technology for the theater, there's so many different ways that that skill set can translate, not only to TV and film, but all sorts of commercial exhibit work. It's endless. And now everybody's also generating their own content. So that's like the other thing that, you know, I need to wrap my mind around as an educator because there are just so many technologies that can lend themselves to the storytelling and the visual representation of this story. So next, I really have to start thinking hard about augmented realities, extended reality stages, and all of that, because it's going to be a part of what we do. And it's, it's definitely a part already of what audiences sometimes expect when they are coming to something that's performative, that they anticipate having an element of spectacle. If you couldn't do any of this, would you have been a tennis player? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still consider myself a tennis player, now an out of practice tennis player. But if I couldn't do any of this, I probably would have ended up in architecture. That would be the road less taken, would be the architecture route? Maybe. And if I was maybe born in the 80s instead of the 70s, I might have been an engineer, <laughs> mechanical engineering, something like that. But I am glad that I still get to work in both set and lighting design with a dash of projection design from time to time. Isn't that fascinating? I, I'm so glad that you came back to Buffalo. We are so lucky to have you here. Well, Lynn, as I said, I could talk to you all day, and I have so much admiration for your work, and I have so much admiration just for the field in general, but your work has just been so, it always strikes me as so visually stunning. It's gorgeous work, and I, I'm so looking forward to seeing it in tribes. No, that's very kind, and and you know what it is, too, the, the result of collaboration. There there are so many great designers, and, and actually at RLTP. I mean, when I get to come in and work with Rickus and Menke and Jenna Danberger. So I, I appreciate that comment. Oh, no, I love talking to you. And I appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to talk to me. Well, I knew you would make this easy. I, I appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's nice to get a little nod. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope to see you in person someday soon. Yeah, likewise. And take care of yourself. And that Say hello to Neil and your beautiful seven-year-old daughter. Tell that granddaughter, UB Design Tech, great mentor. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Yes, I've taken off my mask. You know, that's just what my face looks like. Get used to it. Ugh, never mind. Lynn Koshilniak. Her work is so distinctive. It's so visual. It's so fun to watch. And it'll be featured in Tribes, opening March 3rd for Road Less Traveled Productions. Listen, we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks with another great interview here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pomisano.